4: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week I talk to George Eaton and Anusha Kalian about the new year in politics and whether a new Eurozone crisis could affect the British election. Then Ian Stedman and I talk about the looming antibiotics apocalypse and if anything can be done to stop it. Finally, I talk to John Ellidge about the week that London became bigger than it has ever been before. first week back and the start of the longest long election campaign I think in modern history. I'm joined by our politics editor George Eaton and Anusha Kalian, acting editor of The Staggers, to talk about what the start of what promises to be, I'm going to say, George, a, a very boring year. and that's really, that's me being unfair, isn't it? I'm, it? I'm sure there will be many interesting things that happen. <laughs> this week, perhaps, wasn't the best foretaste of them. So take us through what happened um, starting on, on Monday, really, with the launches.
3: Mm. So both the Tories and Labour are sticking to exactly the messages you'd expect. So Labour very much saying... Um, the NHS can't take another five years of the Tories. It will cease to exist as we know it. And uh, Labour and the Tories saying much the same about the economy. Uh, the economy, as we know it, won't exist uh, if uh, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls get their hands on, uh, on the levers of power.
4: And what are the Lib Dems say?
3: Well, the Lib Dems are struggling to be heard, um, but what they're really saying, I think the the, the line, the most memorable line that uh, Clegg used this week was, uh, we'd give Labour a spine and, and the Tories a heart. Um, and so he's trying to reverse the old argument that a vote for the Lib Dems is a wasted vote by saying, actually, if you vote for us, then uh, we can get... get back into government and we can restrain the things uh, you don't like about the big parties. And actually, uh, a a Lib Dem minister made um, quite a good point to me this week, where he said if you look at um, polling, then there are actually, there's around a third of the electorate who would rather have the Lib Dems back in government with Labour or the Tories than uh, for either party to govern on their own. The problem for the Lib Dems is they
4: can't seem to get any of those people to support them at the moment, but um and anoush how did uh, how was that how did that play out across the press i know there was some um some backlash from the lobbies particularly about the fact that the bbc's norman smith got called a pillock by um by Labour Party supporters at that event. But are the papers already bored by this or or, or was there interesting stuff come out of it?
1: Um, I think the papers are probably quite disappointed with how boring the launches have been because really we thought this election would be one of the most exciting yet because of the added sort of exotic factors from UKIP and the Green Party talking about issues that aren't necessarily at the top of Labour or the Tories' agendas or ideally wouldn't be like um immigration being the obvious one whereas actually both labor and the tories um sort of shrunk back into their comfort zones in a way so the tories were talking a lot about the economy like george said and and labor have been sticking to, to this nhs line um so i think the press have been quite disappointed so far because they haven't been able to sort of you know i mean it's it's just quite
4: predictable. I, I wonder whether or not, because I, I feel like, blessedly, we haven't heard that much from Nigel Farage this week, and I wonder if whether or not some of the over-attention to UKIP has been down to the fact that it's been such a long parliament where everybody sort of felt, you know, you, you expected a general election last year. That was kinda of, seemed a sort of natural timing for it. And actually, as the big you know, Labour and Tories crank out their campaign messages, is that going to crowd UKIP out? I think it is,
3: and I think um, what we've seen is UKIP losing momentum. So, of course, they had those two defections, and then won two by-elections, um, having won the European elections earlier in 2014, of course. And there are no more defections on on the on the horizon, as, as far as we can see. It's quite unlikely that um, anyone anyone will move over at this stage and i i also think some of the recent racist incidents have done some damage to ukip that um it's often said that a lot of this is is, is priced in and that of course ukip supporters know that they're 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 a rum bunch but, but hmm. we'll stick to them anyway um but I think Farage's personal ratings, for instance, have uh, have taken a dip recently, and um, I think um, I think they we may well have seen uh, seen their peak. I think it's unlikely now that the return to the polling highs they had um, in 2014.
4: It's very interesting to think how Farage will look on that stage at the leaders' debates. We've heard this morning that UKIP have been ruled by Ofcom to be a major party for that, for those purposes. The Greens haven't, um, which I, I'm sure will cause a lot of upset, not in the Greens, but actually, in, interestingly, George, in the magazine this week. You interview um, Labour shadow cabinet minister Sadiq Khan, who says that he believes that the Greens should be allowed mm. in those debates. And given that the Greens are only really going to take votes off Labour, why do you think he's saying that and what does it mean?
3: Yes, so I think um, I think he has a principled commitment to pluralism in this case. I think he genuinely thinks, yes, um, you know, you can't legitimately say that they don't have a right to be on the stage if you're going to have have Farage on um, on the platform. But yes, of course, it would be, um, it would be potentially very harmful for, for Labour and the Lib Dems. If you look at the surge that Clegg had after the debates in 2010, um, you know, there's no reason to think that uh, that the Greens couldn't enjoy, uh, perhaps you know, not, not to that extent, but they'd definitely get a boost from them. That's exactly why David Cameron has publicly said, yes, the Greens should be included, because the Tories' hope is to create a split on the left to match the split on the right with UKIP.
4: And Anoush, we had um, Angela Merkel visiting this week. Obviously, that visit was overshadowed by the tragic events in Paris, but nonetheless, she and David Cameron did have time to talk about what might come out of an EU renegotiation. Um, From the press briefing, which again was dominated by the Charlie Hebdo shootings, there were some suggestions that she might be willing to offer him some compromises, not on the free movement of people, but on what you might get when you get to your destination country.
1: Is, is that looking good for Cameron? Um, I think in the short term, this is really good news for Cameron because he can't really do anything about the, the principle of free movement because Angela Merkel has been so um, vehement about that. So the best that he can hope for is this idea of curbing benefits to migrants who come to this country and also um, curbing them sending child benefits back to children who live overseas, which Labour also support. And actually what's more important than that is that the public supports this. Um, so... The biggest concern among the public, when you poll them um, asking them about their concerns about immigration, is that migrants are a drain on the welfare state. Um, so it is the most popular thing that a politician can do to say that they would curb benefits to migrants. So actually, it works in for, in David Cameron's favour that Angela Merkel, um, you know, has suggested that she would give some concessions on the, on that point.
4: And in Greece, um, we've had a, a tour around Europe of Alexis mm. Spiros of Syriza, and he's very angry with Germany. I saw him on Channel Four News, sort of talking about reparations from the Second World War. Um, that aside, I mean, there is a bigger issue really about the eurozone going back into, into, into real crisis this year. George, does that who's who's favor Does that work in?
3: Well, I think um, it does help the Tories because uh, we saw that in in, in twenty ten where they um, were able to point to the the chaos in Greece and say this is what the UK is going to look like if if you keep Labour in power Uh, now as uh, disingenuous as that is it it does uh, resonate with some voters Um, and although the irony of course is that the problems of the Eurozone are caused by excessive austerity which is is a stronger form of of the brew that the Tories have have served up here well the
4: brew perhaps they wanted to serve and then didn't in fact in the Mm. end serve and that's why they haven't reduced the deficit by anything like what they said they would
3: Yes. So um, so really the you know, the Tories arguments uh, are are completely inconsistent here. Their approach is completely inconsistent, but they will. Their big message is this election is a choice between Tory competence and Labour chaos Um, and anything in the Eurozone which allows them to say, uh, you know, this is this is a vision of, of the future under Labour is is helpful for them.
4: Okay, well, uh, politics might not be that interesting. We might be repeating the same old slogans, but we will endeavour every week as the election approaches to find ways to make it interesting for you. So for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Anoush. It's a shocking fact that before 1962, scientists developed more than 20 new classes of antibiotics, since then, they've made just two. At the same time, bacteria evolve, that's what they do, and we're now facing what many public health experts are calling an antibiotic crisis. I'm joined by our science writer, Ian Stedman, to scare the living daylights out of people, basically. Or maybe
2: not, or maybe not, because there might be hope on the horizon. Um, you may have seen the BBC's Longitude Prize, which was uh, recently awarded to... Um, well, it's going to be awarded to someone who comes up with a, a great new way to develop new antibiotics because we're running out of them. Um, and the, the reason for that is simply that uh, it's really hard to find them and develop them. And we've frankly overused them as well. And
4: people want them when they have a cold. Well, yeah. And it be- makes GPs cry.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and we put them in our animals. So the animals don't get sick, so we have more food. But the downside of that is that that antibiotic resistance... Um, is sped up in in farms where animals kept close together basically we developed most of our antibiotics several decades ago uh when we were kind of very excited about it and we 're really running out of it all those stories about um m r s a and other super bugs um uh, in hospitals and such are not because they 're particularly more dangerous as bacteria but simply because we just haven 't figured out a way to 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 kill them with antibiotics they can just resist everything we 've already found
4: and one of the guess things the brilliant things about the antibiotic revolution was it seemed like magic and that you had drugs that often had relatively few side effects Mm. and that's now not quite the case because if you have to put someone on a intensive regime of lots of different antibiotics the the effects of them can be very harsh on on the body
2: yeah absolutely um which is why it's uh well there are lots of alternatives to antibiotics that people have been talking about one alternative is to simply just not use them as much for uh, things that aren't critical, um, but whether well, that is that'll one work is
4: alternative in the case of Clostridium difficile, which is one of the ones that everybody always talks about the hospital superbugs. One oh, of the yeah. things that works a hundred percent of the time: fecal transplants.
2: Oh yes, uh, which is when you make a cocktail out of someone who's healthy and has an immunity to it, out of their feces. You dissolve it in water.
4: Please do say the word injector. <laughs> uh, you do.
2: You uh, you kind of reverse animate it. or Wait no, yeah, main normal enema. It, but yeah, it's it horrible, but it works, and it, it's amazing what poo can do. But <laughs> that's a lovely
4: bumper <laughs> sticker. But I thought the thing that was interesting about that is that they had to stop the trial because they tried it with a control group of people. They give them another treatment, and they decided it was one of those things where it was unethical to continue with the trial. Nonetheless, poo is not the answer to everything. Yes. I can fully concede that. So tell me about this new. Type of antibiotic that's been
1: developed.
2: Yes, uh, this is this is really really big news for two reasons. The first is that we uh, scientists have found a new strain.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds.
0: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's
4: just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: ...of antibiotic called texobactin. It appears to be able to A. tackle all the superbugs that we're worried about at the moment, including stuff like C. difficile and, and so on. But also it seems to be immune to developing resistances. Um, What often happens when you develop a new antibiotic is you try and make it evolve into being resistant um, faster than it would uh, when used normally. So you try and get an idea of how long you're gonna be able to use this as medicine. Um, And normally that doesn't take very long. A lot of the most recently developed classes of antibiotics, the first resistances started showing up months after they were first used. Um, but the scientists who found this, they couldn't make it resistant to anything. So,
4: But I like the quote that was in, um, Ed Yong has written this story up for his blog, uh, National Geographic, uh, and he said, that, you know, they said they were worried that they'd made a detergent. Yes. So the idea is when you make an antibiotic that's this effective, normally what you've actually made is something extraordinarily toxic to mm. healthy cells as well. But that doesn't appear to have happened in this case. No,
2: it doesn't. Um, but the second thing that makes this really exciting as well is that it was developed using a completely new... Uh, way of finding antibiotics called it's this thing called the eye chip which i don't know why the, chip called the eye chip is an excellent i mean
4: i think they just enthralled to apple Hicks. yeah they described what the eye chip was and it basically sounded like a kind of breeze block with holes in it that you put agar jelly in and some yes. soil
2: well you know how people say stuff like um most of the cells in the human body are bacteria and we don't know what they are because we know the reason for that is not like that we can't haven't tried. It's it's really really hard to grow cultures of most bacteria. Really so
4: half of your body mass is bacteria. I, I know. It yeah, like, it's a your lot. Your skin is basically just crawl. I try not to yeah. think about this too much. But, so it's <laughs> <weird>. <laughs> <laughs> but they can
2: only grow in like very specific things, like very specific soils and very specific uh, types of water and stuff. And you can't really uh, then take them out of that natural environment and then grow them on agar jelly and just expect them to be there. Be enough of them to make an antibiotic out of them. So. um What this iChip does is it kind of allows them, it's sort of like a thing that goes between agar jelly and soil or whatever, so that you can grow stuff on agar jelly while the bacteria is still getting its nutrients from its natural environment, which is very clever. Um, So even though we've found this new class of bacteria that, uh, that seems really nice and very useful, the more important thing is that we seem to have found a way to develop new antibiotics even more quickly than we have previously
4: which is extremely good because um Dame Sally Davis who was I think one of um, chief medical officer wrote a book last year that said you know this is one of the huge looming public health crises of of the 21st century so very exciting unusually for a new statesman podcast concluding that we're not in fact all doomed <laughs> yes. we're slightly less doomed than we thought we oh, were oh yeah
2: but we'll be back next week with more doom okay so thank-,
4: <laughs> thank you Ian London reached a milestone this week. It is now the biggest it has ever been and it's only going to keep on growing, for the foreseeable future at least. I'm joined by John Elledge who edits our sister site, citymetric.com, and adopted Londoner Ian Stedman. Hello. Um, John, so this came out of a piece that you commissioned and I had presumed, foolishly, that London had just been getting bigger since forever on a steady track, but why isn't that the case?
0: I think a lot of people presume that. I mean, it seems to have been quite a response to that piece because people were surprised by this piece of information. But the, the the previous peak of London's population was about 8.6 million, which is where we are again now. We last hit that in 1939. And obviously something else happened in 1939 which had a pretty direct impact on why the population fell. Um, because, you know, people were evacuated or, but and you know, some people died in the war. But the, the big thing was that, you know, after... the the Luftwaffe has bombed the hell out of London, it was kind of used as an opportunity to do some slum clearances and move people out to to new towns in in the south-east of England. So it was actually an act of deliberate government policy to sort of reduce the population of inner London, send more people to the suburbs and, and to satellite towns. And London lost about, it was about 2 million people, in that process. Well, that's
4: what I find quite interesting because the narrative that happens so much now is the idea that, um, I think Alex Salmon called London the dark star, this idea that Vince Cable said it was sort of sucking the life out of the rest of Britain. But presumably, I mean, Britain's overall population in 1939 was nowhere, I don't know what it was, I mean, it must have been millions lower than it is now. So London was therefore much more dominant over the country Mm -hmm. comparatively than it is now.
0: London was a bigger proportion of the population in nineteen thirty nine than it is now. Um, I can't remember the exact. I don't
2: point. believe it was per capita as uh, so overwhelmingly richer than the rest of the country. No, no that's mean, certainly true. There was um, cities like Birmingham and Manchester were for most of the nineteenth century and into the 20th, early twentieth were wealthier cities than London. Um,
4: was it bigger geographically? or was it much higher density than London there?
0: grows a lot between the wars so after World War One, when you talk about London you're really talking about what's now sort of inner London but between the wars there's a huge extension of, of the tube mostly and that's the sort of era of Metroland and all those posters you get on the undergrounds that are saying why don't you buy a nice house in Pinner that kind of thing um, so there is a sort of for the first time people are sort of moving out to nice little semis in in what's now outer London and and commuting in by tube so all through that process all through that period people are actually sort of moving out to suburbia of their own accords and then there's a deliberate government policy to accelerate that when the war comes along
2: Mm. if you look at the the density map of London versus this was in your piece which I like the density map of London in 1939 the density map of it it now it's much flatter now. It's like the density in center the center of London isn't that much denser than like uh, you know one of the outer boroughs. Whereas if you look at the 1939 map, central London is hugely dense because of all the slums. But then the suburbs, which I guess at the time was actually still Med- Middlesex, a lot of it mm. um, is is quite empty.
0: And that's that's actually something that makes London pretty unusual. I mean, you look at uh, density maps of most city- cities; they will have an incredibly dense center. And then it will drop off massively and the sort of outer suburbs will not be that much less populated than the kind of ring of towns around them. Whereas London, you've kind of got this, the whole of Greater London is all reasonably evenly built up. Mm. Um, And then it just stops because of Greenbelt. So it looks... It looks very unusual compared to most other cities. And again, this is, a, this is a result of deliberate government policy. I think
4: the Green Belt is really astonishing, actually, because you kind of forget when you live, as I do, in central London, that it is you are not on the train for that long before you're in, an, in a field, whereas I remember going to Tokyo a couple of years ago, and you were just, it just chugs and chugs and chugs and chugs on through. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll have a row about the Green Belt at some future time, perhaps. How do you feel about the Green Belt, John?
0: I have strong opinions on the Green Belt, which you can discover from previous New Statesman <laughs> podcasts, I believe. So we should... <laughs> It's not a good thing. Um.
4: Well, so um, Actually, Ian, the other thing I was going to ask you, because I know that you like transport, and I do not say that in yeah, a pejorative a way. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Hey. We're all friends. Um, but how close to capacity are things like the Overground Network, things that bring people into London?
2: Um, not very close to capacity at the moment, I believe. There's a, there was a quote going around from, I, I cannot remember his name. He was one of the guys involved in planning Crossrail, which is currently being built and will open in three years. And he said that within a couple of months of Crossrail opening, it will be full. Because the thing that happens at the moment is there's a lot of capacity that's just not being that's, uh, latent. So um, there are people who would take the tube an hour earlier than they would mm-hmm. but they can't. Or there are people who drive into work but they'd rather take the tube and they can't. Um, and other things like the Overground which has been a massive success and that's largely just down to simple things like clean trains uh, and good signage a lot of the time and branding which is quite interesting. Um, they're, are they adding fifth Uh, They're adding extra cars to to all the overground trains, and they're already going to be full. Um, Something else it's
0: worth remembering is that London does actually have – I know this is unlikely, but London has a really very good transport system. It does. Um, If you look at the coverage of London's rail network, anywhere within the M25, it's very difficult to be that far from a station. Mm. And that's also unusual. I mean, if you look at uh, Paris, for example, they've got a fantastic transport system in the very centre, but then it kind of tails off in, this, in the ring of suburbs around it, where if you're not near an RER station, then mm. you might be quite a long way from anywhere, quite inaccessible. It's difficult to find one of those places in London. It's, and I think that is actually a sort of, it's a result of the population trends we were talking about earlier. I think that you have that sort of much more evenly distributed population. Mm. It's possible to make a, a business case almost to have a, a railway line going everywhere. Whereas if you have a much less densely populated suburb, it's harder to make the case that you want to put a, a station there.
2: Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to compare Paris to London in terms of socioeconomic uh, sort of status and location. In terms, of, they're both they're very similar cities in the terms of size of uh, population and physical size. Um, but when it comes to where poor people live and where rich people live. There's always been that difference between London, where London is always said to be very mixed and Paris not. And as tall buildings are now coming to London skyscrapers and tall residential buildings, it seems to be that that central core is getting denser and denser. Faster than the outside again, and it seems to be coming to resemble other cities where the poorer people live in the less dense. Uh, One of the uh, things I think is,
4: is fascinating is that there was all the talk about the Olympic regeneration out in East London. You know, Newham's a very poor borough comparatively, um, and there was this theory that they would just chuck up loads of houses, loads of skyscrapers. It was all, you know, this was going to be amazing for supply. And what's actually happened is that those things are selling for one-bed flats for three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand, because again, it was you are talking about latent demand. Mm. There are lots of people who wanted to buy a house, just couldn't in any way stretch it. Now can. You you would have to build even more houses if you wanted to get to a place where you were driving prices down.
2: And we all know that John loves the idea of building more houses. I'm,
0: I'm very much involved. Has it tattooed across houses. his chest? Was, <laughs> basically, yeah. I'm going to get I'm going to get tattooed on my face soon. I mean, in social media terms, I pretty much do. Um, I think probably
4: yeah. that's a note to end on, isn't it? I don't think... Where, where can the conversation <laughs> go from there? Yeah, exactly. So I'll say thank you I've, very I've much. I've left
0: myself absolutely speechless with that mental <laughs> <laughs> Um
4: I'll say thank you very much to John and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. We were produced this week by Ian Steadman, and our theme music is Devil With The Devil by The Underscore Orchestra licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes.